So please have 1 Peter chapter 1 open in front of you. And before we come to this passage, let's just bow our heads a moment and pray. Father, we thank you again for your inerrant, reliable word, the sure rock on which we can stand. Father God, you know our sins. You know our sins, Lord, even in the sanctuary. Lord, I do want to pray that you will deliver us from coming before you in a wrong spirit. Lord, please deliver us from simply being sermon tasters who sit to assess how well the preacher has done, how many marks out of ten. Oh Lord, please deliver us from that and help us to hear your word and to trust it and obey it and to be before you as servants and Lord, those you love. And pray, Lord God, for myself that, Lord, you deliver me from wanting to make an impression for my own name. Lord, I do pray that people would be able to forget who's standing at the front. And Lord, just be aware of you. And Lord, thank you that as we gather, Lord, heaven is not far away. And we are in the suburbs of the heavenly realm. And Lord, you are here. Lord Jesus, please enable us to understand these things. Please, Lord, help us all to get under, underneath your word and to humble ourselves before you. So, Lord, hear us and help us. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, it's a simple question. Why would anyone want to be a Christian? Why is it worthwhile to be a Christian? It's a simple question. And that question lies behind what Peter is saying in these opening verses. They're kind of, it's a question that lies behind what he's dealing with here. Why, would, why is it worthwhile to be a Christian? Perhaps our society asks that question because we live in a culture shot through with apathy, we don't like to be committed. We like to always keep our options open. So why be committed to be a Christian? We live in a society that doesn't really take much seriously. It's all kept very, very superficial. What's the point of being a Christian? That's why we might ask that question. But it's a particularly crucial question for Peter and the folk he's writing to because He writes at a time when Christians are facing suffering for their faith. They're being persecuted. If church traditions are right, Peter himself was writing his letter from Rome, where he himself was soon to be martyred, crucified upside down by the command of the Emperor Nero. And of course, sadly today, across different nations in the world, Muslim countries and and communist countries, 
Christians still very much face persecution and even death for their faith. And perhaps even in our own country, things have become much more difficult than they were. Well, if, if Christianity might cost your life, what's the point? Why is it worthwhile to be a Christian? Well, here Peter addresses that kind of idea, that kind of question. And in our verses, verses 3 through to 12, he gives basically three answers to that question. So we're going to move through those three answers. So first of all, why is it worthwhile to be a Christian? Because of the Christian's future prospects. We find that in verses 3 to 5. Verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. In other words, when Jesus returns. So Peter's first answer is that it's worthwhile to be a Christian because of the Christian's future prospects. Even if his or her life is completely rubbish here, it's still worthwhile to be a Christian because of what the future holds. Let's be honest, many people today are quite depressed about life. Uh, Mostly the TV and the radio news is, is pessimistic about the future. That's why a lot of people don't bother with it. And, you know, climate change and the world is in trouble and... We better stop eating meat because cows cause so many gases and all that stuff and it's all running down and whoa, it's all very depressing, isn't it? And if you think about the great writers who have imagined the future, they don't paint a very optimistic picture either. Just at the moment on the BBC's H.G. Wells' um, story, The War of the Worlds. I can remember being at school and had, we had to read H.G. Wells' novel, The Time Machine, another kind of early science fiction thing, in which he imagines uh, travelling 800,000 years into the future. And what's the situation? Well, mankind is divided into two species, basically. The Eloi, kind of almost like godlike, who live in the daylight. And then there are the... Nighttime people, the nocturnal subterranean Morlocks. And the Eloi are the kind of celebrities, soft, weak, rich creatures, and the Morlocks are the lower class workers toiling underground in factories making stuff for the Eloi. But like human rats, the Morlocks emerge after dark to prey on the Eloi and eat them for meat. It's a terrible picture, but that's Wells' nightmare vision of the future and showed what he thought would be the end point of the division between the rich and the poor. It's, It's a bleak vision. And the future is equally bleak in 
I don't know, Huxley's Brave New World or George Orwell's 1984 or more up-to-date forebodings concerning you know, the future of our world, nuclear weapons or whatever, a world economic slump. It always seems to be so depressing. But over against all that, Peter describes Christians as being in possession, verse 3, of a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that wonderful living hope, that future prospect is nothing less than a new world, a joyful and eternal inheritance, verse 4. This world is not destined for the dustbin. God will cleanse it and renew it marvelously when Jesus comes again. And all that is good and wholesome in this world will be magnified a thousand times. All that's rubbish will be cleared out. And this will be the world to come where Christ will be king. And Peter stresses three things about this coming new world, this living hope. Its inception, its occupants, its certainty. First of all, its inception. How does it come about? Well, it comes about, he says, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There it is, at the end of verse 3. And Peter is basically conflating two things here. Firstly, this present world is in decline because it's under God's curse, because of human sin, because of all our wrong things and wrong ways. But Jesus paid for our sin, for all who believe, paid for our sin when he died on the cross. And his resurrection shows that the curse is dealt with. So I often use this, the cross is like the payment for sin, the wage of sin is death, there's the payment, and the resurrection is the receipt. It's paid for, it's done, it's over. So that's the first thing that's here when he mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But second, how do you know that this coming new world, this eternal world is real and not just some foolish idea, some foolish pipe dream? Well, we know because Jesus is risen from the dead. Death is not the end of all things. Death is not the end of the world. Jesus is risen from the dead as the first example of the life to come. So there's its inception in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In history. Well, who's going to occupy this new world? Let's think about its occupants. We have a place in God's new world, verse 3, through new birth. Through new birth. Just as this world will be cleansed and reborn... So the occupants of that world to come are people who have been spiritually reborn. 
Baptism is a kind of a picture of that. Our old life is finished under the water and then we're raised out of the Baptist pool um, and that, that's like that's like a new life, isn't it? It's, it we, we, we've, we, we've been spiritually reborn. When someone becomes a Christian, God's Holy Spirit, we praise Him, God's Holy Spirit comes into their lives and gives them a new heart, makes us new inwardly. Has this happened to you? Whereas we used to resent God and think we don't want Him in our lives, now we, we're fascinated by Him, we love Him. Whereas we used to fear God, now we know something of the fact that we are fully forgiven and God loves us. And sometimes as a preacher, you can sometimes see the change in people, almost under the word of God. You, you see God's Holy Spirit come and this realisation dawns on people and they're changed. God's Spirit has come. The occupants of the new world are those who have been newly born, have experienced new birth. And its certainty is outlined for us here in verses 4 and 5, you see. It says there, and into an inheritance, that's the new world, that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 4 tells us, Christians, this inheritance is kept for us by God. God doesn't lose things, it's kept for us, it's certain. And verse 5 tells us that through faith we are kept for it. We can't be lost, it can't be lost. So it's certain. It's a certainty for us. This future prospect. Now I know that when I explain this, many people are sceptical. They'll say, I say something like this, well Christianity, when you say things like that, it's kind of, it's kind of, blown its credibility but by, by promising too much some people would say it seems too fantastic they say I could perhaps believe in some kind of spiritual existence beyond death I, I could just about take that in but a new world of resurrection and eternal life that's just too much for me to swallow that's what some people might even be thinking here this morning I understand you saying that but the New Testament's answer to that is this. God does not tailor his promises to suit our cynicism. God does not tailor his promises to suit our unbelief. If he did, he'd be able to offer us very little. Rather, God is a big God. That in itself is an understatement. God is a grand, great, enormous. He made 
He made the universe in the first place. And he can make a new universe. And so he makes big and wonderful promises. So this is the first reason why it's worthwhile to be a Christian. Because of the future prospects. That is your future, Christian. And let me just say this, because I think the Lord wants me to say this this morning. Because your future is secure, you can afford to be adventurous in this life. And not be so worried about making sure you're comfortable all the time. Because our ultimate future isn't here. It's there. So you can afford to take risks. We live in a risk-averse society. And it's affecting the church. But if we truly trust Christ and we trust that we have this future prospect, we can afford, as it were, to take risks for God. And after 50 years, perhaps the church has become a bit comfortable. Praise God for his goodness. But don't become too comfortable. The Lord Jesus took risks for you. Put his life on the line to secure that future world. You're to follow him. Let's move on. There's the first reason why it's worthwhile to be a Christian. Second, the second reason why it's worthwhile to be a Christian is the Christian's present, the Christian's present experience. That's in verses 6 through to 9. All this talk about a new world in the future is all very well, says someone. But I need to know how Christian faith can help me now in this world. Well, that's a fair question, fair enough. And Peter turns his attention in some ways to that now, to the Christian's present experience in these verses. And he tells us two things. He tells us first that the Christian faith gives us a way of handling suffering in this present world. And secondly, Christian faith gives us a source of joy in this present world. So, the Christian's present experience makes Christianity worthwhile. Let's First of all, first, Christian faith gives us a handle on suffering. Look at verse 6. In this, this salvation, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief, perhaps persecution, in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, the secular way of life, in many ways, is kind of fine for this world, so long as everything's okay. So long as you're young and you're not ill and you've got a nice lot of money, to live in a secular way seems okay. But for most ordinary people, most of the time, it isn't okay. We get ill. We get made redundant. Our relationships break up 
you find your work boring. You were promised that you could do anything as long as you concentrate, and it hasn't come about. Your holiday plans get messed up. Perhaps worst of all, the person you most love in all the world dies. How do you handle that? How can you handle that? After all, thinking in a secular way, if this life is all there is and it's so full of trouble, no wonder people are unhappy. But you see, verses 6 and 7, the Christian has a completely different handle on this. A completely different handle on trouble. First, the Christian does not see trouble as random. It says there in in, in verse 7, these have come so that. There's a purpose in this. God is behind this. Even though there's trouble... This is not out of control. This is not something random that's happening to you. All our troubles, big and small, are in God's hands. And if you're a Christian, God loves you. He's going to be with you in that trouble, in that trial. So that's the first thing. That's not bad. And second, he allows trouble in our lives to refine our faith. And grow us as people. So here we are, we're coming through life and we're depending, I don't know, on our money and suddenly it goes. And we can't trust, trust that anymore. So what happens then? We're thrown back on faith in God. That's a good thing. And here we are, we have this wonderful job but then suddenly the firm closes down. And... And we're brought back again to look to the Lord. And that's good. He's proving to us all the time, I'm the only one you can rely on. And God is like an old-fashioned purifier of metals, if you like, who puts the metal into the fire to melt it so that all the rubbish comes to the surface and then can be scooped off. So it's, it's, it's pure. And as you go through this, process and you keep on with Christ, you're proving you're a genuine Christian. The genuine gold remains. And so, I've got a handle on this. I see what's happening here. I realise that this world is not forever. And there's a better world to come. And the Lord is waning me away from this world to look to Him. And these troubles aren't random. He's doing me good. So that's the first handle. The second handle is that Christian faith now, here, gives us a source of joy. It's interesting sometimes to read the newspaper headlines around New Year's Eve. Sometimes they talk about the numbers of people likely to be admitted to hospital because of binge drinking on that night. Or sometimes they talk about the fact there are usually record numbers of abortions after New Year's Eve through casual relationships. And people are messed up 
Well, what, why do people wreck their lives with alcohol and all the rest of it? It speaks of a generation which knows very little of real contentedness and happiness and are desperate to do something, anything, to feel good just for a little while, no matter what the consequences. And they just end up wrecking their lives. Their heart goes out to them. But by contrast with that, Christians have a wonderful source of joy through knowing now, through his word and by his spirit, Jesus Christ. Look at verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, Christ, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you're living by faith, living on God's promises, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The Christian loves Christ. First of all, because of who he is. He's such a wonderful person. Just a delight to be with, as it were. And also because of how much he's loved us. He loved us so much he was prepared to die on the cross for me. To pay for my sins. Be honest. Who do you know who would be prepared to die for you? But Jesus died for us. To know Jesus through his spirit, to know that he, the Son of God, loves us, that is a great source of strength and security and joy in life which no one can take away. So Christian faith not only promises a wonderful future, but it gives us practical ways of coping with this present life. And by his spirit enlightening our hearts and our minds, giving us a joy that the world cannot give. Christmas is coming, you're desperate to have something, you get it, and within a week or two, but this is not like that. It's a joy that the world cannot give. Forgiven sins, peace with God, eternal life. So that's the second reason why it's worthwhile to be a Christian. Why is it worthwhile to be a Christian? Here's the second reason. Just remembering an older man in our own congregation who used to come to church, go to sleep during the sermon. But his wife and his children were Christians. And eventually it dawned on him that he was really proud of his wife and his son and his daughter. And he thought, these are good people. And then it dawned on him, well, why aren't I a Christian? (laughs) That's how Ken became a Christian. (laughs) Because he saw the work of God in their lives now. And and making them into, into good people, you see. So there's the second reason why it's worthwhile to be a Christian. Thirdly, it's worthwhile to be a Christian 
because of the Christian's amazing privilege. The Christian's amazing privilege. We find this in verses 10 through to 12. This wonderful prospect of life with God in a new world and the present experience of knowing Jesus by faith, Peter calls all that salvation, which just means rescue. He has already mentioned the word in verse 5 and verse 9, and now he mentions it in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. The Old Testament prophets had... had foreknowledge from God about this salvation. Not long ago I was reading of a a news reporter who specialises in going to the most dangerous war-torn places to bring the news. And someone asked him why he did that when it was so, so dangerous. And his answer was interesting. His answer was that it was only when he was in those kind of dangerous situations that he felt really alive, really important, really worthwhile. There are many people like that. Somehow ordinary life leaves them kind of feeling bored and unspecial, so they court danger or something to make them different. Human beings, you and me, we have a deep need to feel that our lives are really significant. People have a deep need to feel that they are special. But the consumer information digital technology just treats you as a number. A TV couch potato. Which leaves you feeling you're just a number on a card. And actually, as you begin to dig into what's going on with respect to your use of Google and Facebook and Amazon, every time you use those things, they're finding out more information about you in the most astonishing ways they are. It's called surveillance capitalism. You are under surveillance from them so that they know which buttons of yours to press to sell you stuff. That's what's going on. Alright? So you're just being used. Someone asked me, do I have a Facebook page? That's one of the reasons I don't have a Facebook page. They know, they know more about you than you do about yourself, I tell you. Astonishing these days. Be careful of these things. Be very careful. But you're just treated like, you know, a number, someone to be milked of your money. Unspecial. But Peter is telling us here that to be a Christian is to be a very, very special person. Someone who is the recipient of an amazing privilege. You are the object of God's plan of salvation. God's plan. God doesn't need to milk you. 
He doesn't need anything from you. He's God. But he loves you. Special. Peter here talks about the prophets, doesn't he? The, old, the, the Bible is written in two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament, with a gap of about 400 years between. So think about 1619 from 2019, all right? 400 years, that gap, all right? The Old Testament prophets had something of God's plan of salvation, the sending of his son, the Messiah, revealed to them, Peter says. And they were astonished. What is this? Who are these people that God is so concerned for that a suffering servant who is God's own son will come for them? Of course, the fulfilment of such prophecies, Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus, spelling out precisely what Jesus would do, that's another proof of the reality of God and of Christian faith. And it also talks here, doesn't it, about the glories that would follow, and part of the glories is the spread of faith in the Lord, the spread of the gospel throughout the world which of course we are so privileged to see today. Even a hundred years ago, Christianity was more or less limited to Europe and the United States. But in our own lifetimes, many of us, wow, just as the Bible said, every tribe and tongue and nation, people from China and South America, they're coming to the Lord. The centre of gravity of Christianity numerically has moved to the southern hemisphere. So many millions have come. These are something of the glory that would follow Christ's coming. It's happening in front of our eyes. Because the secular press don't want to report that. Of course not. But the Bible is coming true. All this is part of God's... Who is this focused on? The prophets asked. Peter tells us, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, this was not first of all about them, but you, Christians, when they spoke of the things which have now been told you by those who preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These things are so wonderful, even angels want to look into them, says Peter, but you are the focus of them. There are no more privileged people anywhere in the world than Christians, God's children. That's why it's worthwhile being a Christian. The world will just rubbish you. But God makes you indescribably special. So putting all this together, this salvation, rescue from our sins and from this dark, declining world into the arms of God, that's why it's worthwhile to be a Christian. But there's one last thing to notice that's very important. Look at verse 3. 
Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. This is all of God's mercy. This salvation is not given because we deserve it, because we're better than other people, or we've earned it, or anything like that. It is all about God's pure generosity, kindness, mercy. There's an old story that might help us here. Back in the days of Napoleon, one of Napoleon's soldiers had done something wrong and he was facing court-martial, facing the death sentence. And somehow or other, this soldier's mother got herself into the presence of the emperor and begged for his life. Please, show mercy, she said. And the emperor said, well, what has he done to deserve it? And her answer was, if he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. It kind of focuses up for us. This is of God's mercy. And it's free through Jesus Christ. This is who you are, Christian. The recipient of God's mercy. You're not better than other people. In that you're not meant to be proud, even though you are very special. Because it's God who's done it for you. Become a Christian? Question mark. How do I do that? We must go to God. We must confess the mess of our lives. We must tell him we are sorry for our sinful lives. Self-centered. And we would ask him to forgive us through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And ask him, please Lord, can I be given new birth, be born by your spirit? And can I have a part in that world to come through Jesus Christ? You have to seek him personally. We can't do this for you. It's something that you have to do for yourself before God. And it's so worthwhile. It changes everything. Your past is washed away. The presence of God now and the future prospect of joy to all who do this, God promises salvation. Will you do that today if you're not a Christian? Thank you very much for listening. God bless.